Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taze. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill. Across the table from me is... I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of Millennium Library. And across the table from me is... Hello. My name's Kirsten, and I'm back. Uh, I am the branch head at Harvey Smith Library, and I am here because Trevor is on vacation today. So happy to be here and talk about this fabulous book. We're happy to have you. Thank you. Yes. A good book can carry me away from an ever-engined ordinary day. We wouldn't do this without you. We'd love to know what you think of the books we're reading, too. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Kirsten will give us a summary of the book. But first, let's check in with the panel. How are you guys doing? Good. I just came back from holidays. So I'm ready. Feeling Excellent. rested? Feeling rested. Finished mm. the book on the plane for the nice. second time. Nice. You had recently, well, not recently, several months ago, um, said that you had turned 50, and I just turned 40, so <gasps> happy birthday happy to me. Happy milestone birthday. Yes, thank you. <laughs> you. You remember a while back we read uh, 10th of December by George Saunders? Mm-hmm. Netflix made a movie out of one of the stories. <gasps> yes. Yeah, The Spider Head. And I saw it this week. And? Disappointed. Mm. It has Chris Hemsworth in it, uh, which is good. I like Chris Hemsworth. And many of the aspects of the story are there. But you know, you have a short story and you got to stretch it out to a movie. And so you add stuff. Mm. The added stuff did not add. <laughs> That's too bad. Yeah. It was really disappointing because that was such a good story. Did George Saunders help write it? I don't know. I did not look at the credits. Mm. But uh, I can't imagine he did because the writing wasn't as sharp for anything that wasn't kind of lifted from the story. <laughs> But I could be wrong. I don't know. Movies are an entirely different thing than a book or a story. So, yeah, it's out there, though, if you want to see it. You want to see Chris Hemsworth be kind of entertaining and charming and evil. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's move on with uh, Toby telling us about the author. Okay. Um, Miriam Taves. So it was interesting to write this bio at the same time as reading this book, because the book is very autobiographical about this specific um, period of time in her life. So, of course, I've gone beyond the events of the book, but I think it's important to acknowledge that this book is very true to life. So, Miriam Taves, she was born May 21st, 1964. She grew up in Steinbeck in a Mennonite family. She left Steinbeck at 18 and moved around a bit, spending time in Montreal and London before settling in Winnipeg. Uh, She went to the University of Manitoba and did a BA in Film Studies and the University of King's College in Halifax, where she did a Bachelor of Journalism. She had her first child, Owen, shout out to Owen, um, (laughs) when she was 22, though the relationship with his father was short-lived. She met another man who had a child of his own, and together they had a child, um, Taves' second, Georgia, who just came out with a book, by the way. This man was a street performer, and in the summers, they would get in a van with the kids and travel across North America so he could perform at festivals. At a stop in Las Vegas, at the behest of Georgia, the two got married by an Elvis impersonator. (laughs) Um, Her first novel, Summer of My Amazing Luck, was published in 1996 and was written while she was a freelance journalist. The novel is about single mothers on welfare, of which she was one. This was followed by A Boy of Good Breeding, which came out in 1998. Um, 1998 was also the year her father died by suicide. He had struggled with bipolar disorder. Um, He was an elementary school teacher who lobbied to establish Steinbeck's first public library. His death inspired Taves to write Swing Low, A Life, which was published in 2000. It's a memoir, but written in her father's voice. Her third novel, A Complicated Kindness, was published in 2004 and really placed her on the literary map. It won the Governor General's Award and was shortlisted for the Giller. Uh, This book is about a teenager in a small Mennonite community and is very critical of this community. 
In researching this bio, I read this wonderful article in The New Yorker, where the journalist is at Taves House in Toronto, which she shares with her daughter and her daughter's family, as well as her mother. And all of them are gathered together talking and about a complicated kindness. Her mother says, I read that book from beginning to end. And I told her, well, Miriam, it's a good thing we're Mennonites. At least you won't get shot. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a wonderful article. I will share it. So that novel was followed by 2008's road trip novel, The Flying Troutmans. Um, in 2009, she moved to Toronto as her marriage had ended. Her sister was sick. Her daughter wanted to go to stand-up comedy school, and she generally needed a change. Her mother joined her soon after. Uh, her 2010 novel, Irma Voth, was inspired by her experience in a movie. After seeing her author photo, a director cast her in Silent Light, which is set in a Mennonite colony in Mexico. The film is in Plaut Dutch. Did I say that right? Plaut Dutch. Okay, thank you. The low German dialect of the Mennonites, which Taves does not speak. Uh, she learned her lines phonetically. The film was awarded the jury prize at the 2007 Cannes Film Festival. Uh, not long after Taves sent her editor the manuscript of Irma Both, her sister Marjorie was admitted to the hospital for attempting to commit suicide. Um, this event, what transpired around it, and her sister's eventual death are chronicled in the 2014 book, All My Puny Sorrows. This book was adapted into a movie that came out last year. This book was followed by Women Talking in 2018, which was inspired by true events that took place on a remote Mennonite colony in Bolivia. The movie of Women Talking, um, directed by Sarah Polly and starring Frances McDormand, should be released later this year. And Taves' most recent book is Fight Night, which came out last year. Um, she currently lives in Toronto in a four-generational household with her partner, her mother, her daughter, and her daughter's family. Love that. Yeah. Love all that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I loved her in that movie, too. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Such a quiet, sort of white, slow, like it's, you just, you have to just kind of immerse yourself. It's, hmm. it's really great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You have to sort of be in the mood, I think, for it. But yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll do the summary, which... <clears throat> it sort of was alluded to uh, quite a bit in the bio. So, uh, All My Puny Sorrows is about sisters Elfrida and Yolandi van Riesen from a fictional conservative Mennonite community in Manitoba called East Village. They are raised, though, in what a lesser character in the book called a word family. So, very intellectual, free-spirited Father Jacob, who 12 years earlier had stepped in front of a train and killed himself, and their mother Lottie, the brave, strong, funny matriarch who just can't help herself. She just loves people, loves everyone. I did think I'd just read the actual summary from the book. Elf, Alfreda, and Yoli, Yolandi, are two smart, loving sisters leading very different lives. Alfreda is a renowned pianist, wealthy and happily married. Her younger sister, Yolandi, is a writer, divorced, broke, and forever chasing after the wrong men in her search for true love. But Elf is struggling with her demons, and Yoli doesn't know what to do. Elf wants to die and wants Yoli to help her. Yoli desperately wants her sister to live. Three weeks before her highly anticipated international tour, Elf lands in the hospital after a suicide attempt. There's doubt that she will be well in time, but Elf doesn't seem to care. The bonds of the sisters' love for each other are tested, and Yoli faces a decision that will forever change her life. Whew. Yes. Sad. This is, this is yeah. <laughs> so maybe the heaviest book that we have uh, read in the podcast. Not in terms of the size of the actual book, just the subject matter is so heavy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, yet, I would laugh out loud sometimes. Oh, you know? it's so funny. And I wrote down so many of the phrases, some of the comments. Yeah, it's she has a gift. Taves has a gift of of exploring this deep, sadly, so, such sad subject matter, but in this truly human way that captures. I don't know. Yeah, this weird sort of dark comedy, almost. You know the the way she describes things and how people react and yeah i i read recently uh summer of my amazing luck just to kind of prepare myself for reading this book and uh the thing i walk away from both books with is that she describes the chaos of regular life extremely well just little things like you know oh you got this big problem and you got this big problem oh by the way also the door on the car is stuck and you got to get that fixed now 
and just you're trying to do one thing and something else pops up and uh, just as a writer like that's not something that's often conveyed well in books but she really does a great job so in general how did you guys find it i loved it again for the second time i maybe even loved it more Mm -hmm. i read it when it first came out and i think just even what i've experienced in my life in this time between that 2014 and now and I'm not Mennonite uh, but I and I didn't live in a small conservative town but I see myself in this book as well and then I also see how I would like to be as well yeah similar feelings also a reread for me and other books I've reread for the podcast like Unless and Love in the Time of Cholera those did not stand up at all but this one uh, I loved it just as much I mean I'm a I'm a huge Taves stan to begin with but this is just this is my favorite book of hers and it's just yeah it's so it's so good yeah I struggled a lot with this book because this book touches so many things that are in my life I grew up in a Mennonite family when they're talking Plotich and they mention, you know, the Mennonite Treasury cookbook. My mom has that cookbook and we get food based on that cookbook all the time. Uh, the names are all names familiar. I had a Mrs. Reason as my math teacher in junior high. I feel connected with so many elements of this book. I'm about the right age to uh, very similar in age to the author. And, and also, um, I have struggled with depression for most of my life and, uh, particularly lately, I have had two separate conversations with people just in the last month about suicide uh, that were entirely separate from this book. Mm. So for me, this book was a real emotional ride. Wow. Uh, the other thing I can say about Miriam Taze's writing is she is bang on. She, mm. <laughs> she is coming straight from the heart with everything that is in this book, and you can feel it permeating it. Uh, so... I didn't like reading it <laughs> because it was just, uh, it was a lot, but on the other hand, it is an amazing book and, uh, she, yeah, she's an author that I'm going to pay a lot of attention to in mm-hmm. the future. Just, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I didn't grow up Mennonite, so I don't have familiarity with that part of the book, but the the setting, the Winnipeg-ness mm. of it, it really, it's also very much, I think, a novel about place and mm-hmm. and all of the references to Winnipeg, Garbage Hill, the street names, that, that sound of ice breaking up yes. on the river, like it just makes it so much more personal almost, and like you can just see where she is at all times, and that, for me, um, really also added to my enjoyment of it. I have always enjoyed books where I can recognize things. Like first time I read The Pelican Brief by uh, Grisham. I had been to New Orleans not long before that, and it's set in New Orleans, and I knew this square and this place, and it's like, oh, okay, I can kind of picture it. And, you know, I've read a few books that were set in Winnipeg, but, yeah, this one was very much, oh, yeah, we're going up Corridon, you know, we're doing this. Although the references to St. Ovid Hospital. Yeah, she, I thought she must have changed that from St. Boniface. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, when I searched yeah. for it on Google, St. Boniface is the only one that came up for Winnipeg. I, I don't know if it was because she was uh, wanting critical. to distance it a little bit because yeah. she was critical of the care. Yeah. Yeah, I thought about that also. I mean, St. Odile, Odile, Odile? it has to be a stand-in for St. Boniface. And, I mean, she is very critical of the care that her sister receives at the hospital, so I can see why she might not want to name it. But I was curious about the name itself, so I did look it up, and Mm -hmm. St. Odile, um, it's either of Cologne or Alsace, is the patroness saint of good eyesight, Oh, <laughs> um, but also Odile is the black swan, an antagonist in Swan Lake. Hmm. So there's hmm. some like evilness, badness there. <laughs> yeah, I, I was very curious because yeah, I'm every, sure she would have chosen it yeah. with a, re- a reason behind it. I think. Yeah, yeah. It's, you don't just as a writer, you know, words yeah. are everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I found that little substitution very interesting though, because mm-hmm. everything else is so much like on the spot yeah Mm -hmm. very recognizable yeah like to the point where so i'm not mennonite but i'm i'm german and my dad uh grew up speaking plattdeutsch so not how did you say plattdeutsch is the pronoun you can also say plattdeutsch Plattdeutsch, yeah yeah, that's sort of more the northern german way of just saying plattdeutsch but and my my dad's mother's name was elfriede 
And my dad experienced a, a maid death last year. So, and he lived in Evergreen Place, which I'm sure that's where Lottie lived. It just sounded like it, because hmm. um, just the way she described the building yeah. and then the pool. And <laughs> so anyway, there were all of these things that I just kept because it's only been a year since my dad died. And so there were all these things that kind of like drew me into this story in a very different way than I read it the first time, like I said before. And I think we just need to explain maid. Yes, sorry. Maid is the medically assisted in death. So yeah, so just that whole concept of helping someone. And now he, he was a very old man and he was very happy to be able to have chosen this. But I could just... I could understand Elfrida maybe, or Elf more maybe than I would have 10 years ago when I read this book or eight years ago. Yeah, it just, it surprised me just how personal it, it felt. Yeah, yeah, after yeah. These, these years. Yeah, well, that's the thing I found in this book. Like, I identified very much with Elfrida yeah. and with Yuli. Like, I've been on both sides of that, of those thoughts. And uh, just seeing them written out in such a, clear way i mean for something that is so chaotic in a lot of ways it's it's also very clear there is that range of emotion yoli struggle throughout to kind of balance not wanting to watch her sister suffer with not wanting to live without her sister mm-hmm. in the world it's just yeah very accurate and heart-wrenching yeah, yeah. it's it's yeah. it can rip you apart when you're reading it it's yeah. Yeah, the quote that I found in so many reviews was, um, she wanted to die and I wanted her to live and we were enemies who loved each other. Right. Yeah. The enemy part. Yeah. And where's that one part where she gets so angry, too? Mm -hmm. I was sort of waiting for that, you know? At what point do you just kind of get angry and say, look at your life and look at my life? Mm -hmm. And yeah, Yeah. who's the one that should be wanting to die here? It's me, not you. You have everything. But that just is just the huge question and and point is that it's not just all about that. No. And then there's the beautiful response on the other side where she's talking to her friend and her friend is like, oh, you know, such a selfish choice for her to kill herself and she's going to hell. And like, Mm. and there's Yoli. It's like, what are you, you know, like just defending her sister and having to have grown to that position from where she was before which is quite a change quite a a struggle-filled evolution i I like that last conversation because that's it's one of the difficult things about talking about something like suicide is most people do not want to talk about it and when they talk about it it's a lot of talking points Mm -hmm. and you would think that someone if you're friends with someone and their sister has just died you wouldn't go throwing it in their face like that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but people do and uh, that's part of the challenge of these conversations. And that's part of what's beautiful about this book is that it puts it out there so clearly and uh, gives the opportunity to think about those thoughts uh, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like, too, that uh, in the book, there were a few points where they were talking about books with sad things. And uh, I just had a quote here. It was like, My mother tells Tina that she doesn't like books where the protagonist is established as sad on page one. Okay, she's sad. We get it. Mm -hmm. We know what sad is. And then the whole book is basically a description of the million and one ways in which our protagonist is sad. Give me a break. Get on with it. Uh, And she's written a very sad book. So it's very meta. Yeah, right. Uh, I love the Elvira character. Elvira? No. She's Elvira in another book. See, this is why I get this mixed up. There's always the Lottie character in this book. But there's always... Not always, often a character, uh, like a matriarch, grandmother figure in Miriam Taves' books, who is this sort of larger-than-life, non-judgmental, very witty, older woman. In her newest book, Fight Night, she's even named Elvira, which is Mm. Miriam Taves' mother's actual name. Um, And I just, I I love that character so much. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I agree. I just yeah. finished reading that book. And yeah. so then to read this one uh, again, I'm like, oh, I just love this. And the Swiv thing, which suddenly clicked after reading this book. So the main oh, yeah. character in Fight Night, her name is Swiv. <laughs> she's a she's a child. And, uh, you know, you think, okay, that's a, a name I've never heard before. There's never any explanation about the name. And then in this book, 
someone is nicknamed Swiv that you later find out is a nickname for Swivelhead. Yeah. Well, that's Yoli. Yeah. yeah. And that's Alfreda's yeah. nickname for her. Yeah. yeah. So we get another Swiv <laughs> in Fight Night. Uh, yeah. I didn't realize the uh, Miriam Taves universe, the Taves universe, yes. uh, is so connected. Yeah. It's hard to talk about just one of her books without talking about all of her books because even this book, the characters are from East Village, which is where the sisters in A Complicated Kindness are from. And mm. I've heard Miriam Taves talk about how this book is them grown up. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it is it is a universe. Yes. Yeah, and yet you can still read each book yeah. on, on their own. You could start with Fight Night. I mean, For it sure. doesn't really yeah. matter. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, books and, and literature and libraries, or does they figure so prominently? Mm-hmm. I think always, but I just in all of her books, but I just really, really noticed it a lot in this, in this book. Yeah. Um, was it her mom who was always reading mysteries? Whodunits. Whodunits, mm-hmm. yes. And it was never called a mystery. It was yeah. like, whodunit. <laughs> she just had her whodunit on her, yeah. on her chest. And, like a yeah. shield for her heart. Yeah. 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 <sighs> there was also that great line where uh, Yuli and Alfredo were talking uh, Yuli, she said, I am just saying that apologies aren't the bedrock of civilized society. Yes. All right, I said, I agree. But what is the bedrock of civilized society? Libraries, <laughs> said Elf. <laughs> and then later on, she explains that it's, uh, you know, because libraries are a place where you make an agreement. The agreement yeah, you is promise. you'll return the book. Yeah. Yeah. And what other organization offers that mm-hmm. as a promise to work on? Right. Right. <laughs> so. We're, we're a little biased, but we like those comments. <laughs> Books are what save us. And then, you know, it's also used in this super sad way when, you know, Nick brings Elfrida home for her birthday. And then Elfrida just really, really wants the books that she's had on reserve from the library. So he runs to probably Cornish <laughs> um, Cornish Library to bring these books back to yeah. her and of course that's the time that she needs I think I actually pictured that as Harvey Smith oh really yeah okay because I was thinking they were like in Wolseley West End yeah that's true yeah. yeah Owen does come to Harvey Smith so that make, does make sense <laughs> yeah although I was trying to figure out since everything is kind of placed in Winnipeg that where which tracks would she have gotten to if she mm. went to the railroad tracks she was hit by a train like her father well I don't know which ones they would be I guess mm-hmm. she could have gotten in a car or something. Anytime I picture railroad tracks in Winnipeg, I picture the um, ones that go under the Salter Bridge. I guess it's like the rail yards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a train that sometimes goes over that train bridge from Wolseley to Wellington. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's a train there. I mean, not very often. Too. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, that's... That's a detail that, yeah. Yeah, it it doesn't spoil the story. No, 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 no. no. I was just curious about it. Well, in reading, um, so her dad, he also um, committed suicide in front of a train. And I guess um, there's no train through Steinbeck. And so he went to the town over where there there was a train. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't realize that her father had also started the library in Steinbeck. Because yeah. in the book, too, he, um, her father, Jacob, has a petition. Yeah. They're big on these go and gather names. Mm-hmm. Um, they get a petition to, to get something started, whether it's mm-hmm. something wild and wacky, like Elfrida does, or, yeah. What else did he do? He did something else, too. He did the libraries, but then he had done also something else. Anyway, it was... He was a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. He was a teacher. Yeah. And Alfreda was then the librarian that helped him when, once the library started yeah. up. Yeah, the memories of Alfreda as a child were uh, a really interesting read. Mm-hmm. Like such a a dynamic kid, so energized and full of ideas yeah. and and resistance to the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was like you. You could see the seeds in her later life, right there in the early life, and uh, it was so fun to read about her. Like. Well, I'm going to go look at the paintings in the rock on the water. And her family's yeah. like, don't, you're going to fall in the water. But she's, no, I'm going to look. And then it's like, oh, I'm going to leave my mark on the world. And she starts putting her, you know, four letters, yeah, yes. amps all over the place. Yes. And the elders come and they want to, like, shut all this stuff down because, you know, they're getting ideas from reading mm-hmm. these books, you know. And then uh, she just goes and plays the piano and shuts them up with the pure yeah. power of... Rachmaninoff. Yeah. <laughs> Just carrying emotion through yes. her music. I, I love people like that. I love 
kids like that. I, I met one the other day in the idea mill. Where mm. we, I was, I love giving <laughs> tours in the idea mill because I like to see the moment when an idea for a project comes into a person's eyes and I can see them thinking about it. And we had a, two different families actually came in where the older child, who I'm guessing is around 10 years old, was just this bright, inquisitive, asking these good questions about what they could do there. And uh, I could see the ideas forming. And I just, I love that when you encounter that. Yeah. And Elfrida was all sorts of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I loved that story um, that came more at the end of the book where Elfrida finally gets to be Mary in the church play. And she's like, oh, it's a yeah. role I was born for. <laughs> and Yoli insists on being Jesus's aunt, mm-hmm. insists on being Mary's um, oh, just being there. Yeah. yeah, and being right there and making sure that, you know, there's enough hay to take care of <laughs> Jesus and that, the you know, his, his uh, diaper's been changed and all that. But to always be there, even though everyone wanted her out. But I, I love that because that was sort of more of a thing that, elf would do Mm. and so to see that at the end um and just to have her stand her ground that's where i'm going to be that's who i am i'm mary's sister i'm Elf's sister i thought it was really beautiful yeah and as you say that i'm realizing that i hadn't really thought about the fact that yuli is such a supporter throughout the book Mm -hmm. she they're there she wanted to support mary in the play Mm -hmm. and be right there but like throughout the whole thing, she is providing support to her mom, to her uh, sister, to her other members of the family, her aunt Tino, and she's coming by. Mm-hmm. Like she's the one picking people up from the airport. She's making all these trips back and forth. She's trying to make keep her family together, even though she's separated from them. She is helping everyone, even though her her life is just a chaotic mess and it's hard to keep up with because she's also helping everyone else at the same time. Uh, such a, a loving, caring person and character. Yeah, and so much of her relationship with her children is told through the texts that she has to send them. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's so funny. You can just tell what a close connection she has with these kids. Mm -hmm. Just super, super funny. And oh, I loved, how did she describe Will? Something about, oh, well, he's either um, in in the library or he's occupying Wall Street. <laughs> like, one or the other. I mean, that's what he's doing. And it was just sort of nonchalant, and I just thought, yeah. The nonchalant humor in this thing yeah. is uh, something that really carries you through all the darker stuff. Like, you know, her kid texts her, we have carpenter ants now. She texts back, you know, it's good. Put them to work fixing the door. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, this line I couldn't help but laugh at. One thing I've noticed about men is they become very uncomfortable and a bit angry when, after having sex with them, you cry your eyes out for a few hours and refuse to tell them why you're upset. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's... Uh, or what was that other one? There was the one about where she decided that uh, if anyone walked by in the next 10 seconds, that would be a sign she shouldn't take Elf to Switzerland. She counted to 10. Then there was a cat. Confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that would be confusing. Yeah, and sometimes, like, I've, I writ, wrote down a, a line here. She was talking about uh, sort of the, the structure of the conservative Mennonite community and the men you know, inheriting so much and the wealth and the girl line in their family may not have money or inherent wealth, but they have rage Mm -hmm. and quote, we will build empires with that gentleman. I, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I should probably bring up as a person from a Mennonite background that, uh, there is a diversity of Mennonites out there. There is definitely the very conservative, uh, restricted type of community that is described from Elfrida and Yuli's upbringing. There's also very liberal strains of Mennonitism, which is where I grew up. Uh, like a, a lot of Mennonites are very much about social justice and, uh, getting out in the world and, and doing positive things, very progressive. Uh, so there's quite a range, Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of funny. Anytime you see a news story on Mennonites, they always like to go to an authority to get a quote, like, you know, with, uh, something with the Catholic church, you go to the diocese or the uh, Vatican. And, uh, I was reading one story and, uh, it was about a Mennonite community in, I think Saskatchewan and their connections to a community in Bolivia. 
And so they went to the Mennonite Central Committee, I guess because mm. it sounds central. But Mennonite Central Committee is a disaster relief organization and has no control over any Mennonite community <laughs> because there is no centralized structure for Mennonites as a faith. So mm-hmm. I always uh, just like to point out that there is a lot of the very conservative, and of course we heard that a lot in the news during the pandemic with Absolutely. some of the churches, but but there is a range of them. Mm-hmm. So just yeah. Absolutely. And Tave still considers herself a Mennonite, you know, she's not like a conservative capital M Mennonite perhaps, no. but uh mm-hmm. but she still very much identifies with that. I would like to ask your opinion on the scene with the canoe. The mm. two boys with the canoe, because that was one of the scenes I very clearly remembered from my first reading of it. So I kept waiting for it, and then it popped up, and I, I'm just intrigued by that scene. I, I, there's something about it. Yeah, right? It's it's a very oddball kind of scene, yeah. and yet you can imagine it. Like, yeah. you see a lot of weird things in any city, but yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, you could totally picture it. But also, again, sort of, a, you know, the social commentary. Yeah. You know. Of, they seem like they're indigenous yeah. children. Yeah, because they're heading back to Rosu A reserve, yeah. River. They're in foster yeah. care. Yeah, yeah. And so they just need to get Something there. about maybe that they're portaging. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. 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 And you can't sort of see them, uh-huh. you know, except for their, their legs. Also, too, the whole, the water is such a huge <laughs> element through this whole book with the ice breaking up and then the rivers mm-hmm. and the canoeing. And it's not safe right now to canoe because of the ice and hearing the ice. And yeah, it's an, it was an interesting, I actually didn't remember it from the first oh, time. So when okay. I read it, I was like, oh, that's interesting that she's bringing in. I really saw it as being sort of a social commentary hmm. about Winnipeg, although just as a little sort of aside? Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. Well, there there were a lot of things in here that are kind of asides to the, the social structure. Like, there was that. Like, clearly these kids were not having a good experience in foster care and wanted to get home. And there's a whole question of Indigenous children in foster care and how often it happens and when it's appropriate and not. So that's like a, a significant point to put in kind of this brief little vignette. Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing with the mental health care mm-hmm. and the struggles that they had to get, you know, what Yoli perceived as uh, compassion or caring for someone in struggling with mental health. These are like deep subjects and she doesn't treat them lightly. She puts them in a very realistic way. But it's also like a small chunk in the midst of all these other things that are happening. It's part of the fabric of what's happening around her. And again, very true to life. Like no matter what you're dealing with at any given moment, something else will pop up in front of you that is also important, but you can't focus on it right now. You can give it maybe a little bit of time to try to, you know, give these kids 20 bucks so they can take a bus home instead of going and risking their lives on the river. And then that's kind of the last they think of it because they got other things to deal with, you know. I think that also speaks to like a lot of people, like characters in the book, but like a lot of people that you meet, they have a lot of compassion. Even when they're dealing with their own struggles, they do find that moment to help someone else out where they can before they get back to dealing with their own stuff. So that's part of what I took from that kind of scene. And who was it again who said, oh, it's not... It's not safe to go on the river right now. It was, was that um, Nick? no. It was was it Dan? It's um, Elf's partner. Is his name oh, Dan? Right. No, that or was Will. Nick. Nick. No, Nick? Will's her her son. Will's her son. Nick is, is Nick is is yeah. Nick is the partner. Okay. Yeah. So it's sort of interesting because now I'm sort of thinking just out loud here, but like because they sent Lottie off at the beginning after the first suicide attempt in the book on her cruise mm-hmm. on the water mm-hmm. and then like I don't know maybe I'm reading too much into it but like you know finding some solace and escape mm-hmm. on the water but with this this particular instance these two young boys it wasn't safe for them to go on the water and that sometimes there's like the right moment maybe to 
I don't know. I may be reading too much into the symbolism, but I love symbolism, so I could think about it all day. Yeah. Um, well, water is easy to use for symbolism because mm-hmm, it is essential yeah. for life, but it's also very dangerous. It can yep. destroy yep. cities and yeah. you can drown. And Yes, know. and I mean, she would even sort of make mention of like, oh, the river's uh, flooding again. So I just, as I was walking home, I saw all these people filling sandbags, like just, mm-hmm. like you said, yeah. an aside. This and, is what's yeah. happening. Yeah. And again, such a Winnipeg thing. Like, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. How often have any of us like gone and helped sandbag someplace or, you know, at least yeah. been around while it's going on? Like it's just a part of the background. And at one spring. point, isn't she like, I threw my phone into the river? No, I didn't throw my phone yeah. into the river. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah. 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 Lots of those little asides I just really kind of loved. I mean, the same with like, her mom in the middle of the night talking to that guy, you know, over the balcony to see if he could, you know, if he wanted 50 bucks to help move the organ to Julie's mm-hmm. house. Like, yeah. And he does. And he does. And they're moving it at a ridiculous hour. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, is the pants scene in this book or is that in the article I read with uh, Lottie giving a man pants? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. The sweatpants. Okay. And then yeah, he put he it over his scarf. He's like, well, that works. <laughs> That works too. Yeah. 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 Oh, Another example of how you can try to help people, but they will accept the help however they accept mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mm-hmm. can't really control that. Yeah. Yeah. I love Lottie in Toronto. Um, mm-hmm. Like that whole end bit where she's in Toronto and she's wearing her, you know, extra large pink shorts and her Scrabble t shirt. And she sees no reason why she's any different from these beautiful 20 something film students and why they can't hang out in the same place. And it's yeah. just, it's so, it's so pure. And then meanwhile, Yoli is compiling, Yoli and Nora, her daughter, are compiling a list of all of the stores that won't um, serve Lottie because they think. they're snobs. Yeah. Yeah. Compiling a list that I will never go into that store again because of how they've they've treated Lottie. Lottie, though, is, has no clue or just doesn't doesn't care. Doesn't care. Doesn't care. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's seen enough and she's not phased by any of it. Yeah, she's yeah. really something to aspire to. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then, again, referring back to the chaos in this book, like Aunt Tina comes all mm. the way from BC to help her sister out and then dies. And yeah. that happened in real life. D- really? Oh, yeah, their that's... aunt. Their aunt came out from BC to help while the sister was in the hospital and had okay. a heart event and died. I mean, yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> basically everything in this book except the characters' jobs and the names is yeah. true. Wow. Yeah. When we were reading Unless a little while ago, I'd commented that the thing I got from it was the idea of, like, how do you keep going on when something is terribly, terribly wrong? And in this one, it's, it's like, that amped up even more. Like, amped. everything. Amped, yes. <laughs> <laughs> everything that is going wrong. Like, you know, they're trying to keep Elfrida alive, but she doesn't want to be alive. And Tina dies, uh, the car door is stuck, there's carpenter ants, like the, you know, she's not sure exactly what her daughter's doing with this uh, young guy who can't speak English. Uh, (laughs) It's like, she's seeing all these different guys, she can't quite sort that out. It's like, everything is a chaotic mess, and yet they are all going through. And I think there was even that conversation, like, uh, how are you carrying on it's like well how are you carrying on mm-hmm. like how are you carrying it's like how are any of them doing it and they all are mm-hmm. so strong and resilient in the face of all of this even though for each of them it, it's got to be an immense struggle but they carry on and maybe you know it's part of it is that she notices still all the other things happening the carpenter ants the ice breaking up you know, she just takes note of that and files it away. Or, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, that maybe helps kind of be resilient in that way. And what about her book that she's always writing? Oh, Yoli's in the Safeway, yeah. Safeway plastic in bag. In the Safeway plastic bag yeah. about yeah. the harbor master and the <laughs> yeah. boat and water. ending up in wa- I know, water, water yeah. again. Yeah. Rotterdam. That that was such a weird... I just love the fact that she could not think of any plausible reason why this can happen because it's just like, make a phone call. <laughs> and I think oh, of how many... That's what everyone would say. Yeah. Well, how come he couldn't contact anyone? Yeah. How yeah. come he ended up in Rotterdam? And I, and I kind of feel like that's like, you know, maybe 
it could be a commentary on a lot of movies where the whole movie would have been stopped if someone had just spoken one or two sentences to someone else at the beginning of the yeah. movie. Just say, yeah. oh, hey, by the way, my sister's coming over. Yeah, that's my sister, not uh, someone I'm having an affair with. You know? Yeah. But again, but, the water, you know, being mm-hmm. on the water, the... But I just love the idea that she had this whole story and there was a whole book and she was going to write it, but there was this central thing <laughs> yeah. that she just didn't understand and yeah. couldn't mm-hmm. figure out. Yeah. Yeah. But she was still pushing ahead with the book because there was something important about that to her, mm-hmm. you know, about being lost on the water, being yeah. out of contact, being unable to fix a yeah. situation and other people not understanding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A big yeah. departure from her rodeo books. Exactly. Yes. Her yeah. whole rodeo series. Yeah. <laughs> Which I would like to read one of those. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Someone needs to write some fan fiction. Oh. Yeah. Well, maybe there is a rodeo. I haven't actually looked. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe she's got a pen name and she's been writing these all along. I was just remembering, too, she was sort of trying to think of like a title for the book, for the boat book. Mm -hmm. And she was thinking, A Lifetime of Resentment, A Devotion (laughs) to Sadness, Untitled, Entitled. Like, made me think, yeah, so, yeah, what would the title of your life story be? I love Dilly's internal monologue, especially when she'd go off on a weird tangent and it would just, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. completely disconnected from what was happening around her, except not quite, but mostly, you know. So um, as a person who grew up as a Mennonite, is a Mennonite, the song that they were singing, Do, they kept I don't of, know it. Is it Do, Do, Leaks Me in Hats, and Do, Do, Leaks Me in Yes, do, oh my God, I do, do know that song. Do, Leaks Me in Hats, and Weiss. Du wie lieb ich dir bin. I was just actually visiting with my German cousins in Toronto, and we were singing a lot. And that one, I remember, like my Oma mm-hmm. singing Elfriede, and it, it. But it's that's in High German, so yeah, it would be different. So how does it go in Plattdeutsch? Well, I can't tell you because um, I, when I grew up, Plattdeutsch was my Plattdeutsch was my first language. Yeah. But um, when we Plattdeutsch came to, was your first language. Well, as a child, really. Yeah, but I was three when we came to Canada. So uh, then I started learning English, and then it all blended together for me. And the church that we went to uh, was a high German, or high German is what most people just call German. Yeah. But if you're from a Mennonite background, there's high German and there's Plotich or, or low German, mm-hmm. and uh, they're very similar. They're they're very similar languages, obviously, except that the pronunciation is very different. Low German is very guttural. Very, oh, unlike German, German. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, Even more. it's that amped up, right? Yeah. Like, like uh, just to say, like, Plattdeutsch is the high German way of saying Plotdeutsch. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of low vowel sounds and, like, guttural and low rolling things. Uh, it's a very... I think of it as a very earthy language because um, my family going back generations were farmers and yeah. worked in the earth and uh, extremely practical people. And and there's a kind of, I don't know if it's just cultural or but there's, there's a very, what do you call it? The sense of humor is very subtle and uh, you could miss it if you don't realize that people are telling jokes. Mm. My favorite low German joke was that I heard once in church was something like, uh, and I might mix in some hydrogen with this, but, weißt du, Johann Kehler? Nein. It's like, nein. It's like, gut, ach, auch nicht. Which, uh, and I'm sorry for the pronunciation, it's terrible. <laughs> but it's basically like, do you know John Kehler? Like, nope, good, neither do I. <laughs> I don't get it. It, it's it's a bit surrealist. Okay. It's a bit silly, but uh, it's just like that. That's kind of what I think of as like low German Mennonite humor. <laughs> There's a range there too, but yeah, no, the language is is a very interesting one. When they would say good night, they would say Schlopschein. Yeah, Schlopschein. That's how my parents sent us to bed every night. Yeah. Schlopschein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, this book had so many callbacks to my childhood. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. <sighs> my dad had a uh, bumper sticker on um, on our car, and it said, uh, Ich spreche platt, du auch? I speak Plattdeutsch, do you? Yeah, but the, the, the difference is very, like you said, yeah, sort of a bit more, like, harder. Ich, ich. Yeah. 
Ziemlich. An interesting side note about uh, Plotich 2 is that it was not a written language for the longest mm. time. And I, when I say longest time, I mean, like, I think in the last 20 years, there have been efforts to kind of make a consistent written form. Mm -hmm. But before that, like, if you saw Low German written, it was all phonetically done by whoever was writing it. And if you read two uh, Plotich Uh, stories or books or whatever by different authors, they would have different spellings for the same words. Mm. Uh, the first time I encountered it, I could not make heads or tails of it, but my youngest brother, he was actually pretty good at figuring out what mm. was in there. <laughs> anyway, all kind of side notes. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of cultural stuff in here that if you are from the culture or familiar with it, it will all be extremely true. Oh, you're going to have to read her back catalog. I'm, yes. I'm going to have to. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a little scared, too, because she's such a, a gut punch writer mm. for me. Like, This is the gut punchiest. Yeah. yeah. Even the summer of my amazing luck, though, I found so many aspects of it to be just, it, it's, it's too real. Like, I, I read to escape from reality, and uh, everything I've read from her so far is very grounded in reality. Yeah. Very true to life. Uh, it could just be biographies of people she knows. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. 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 Anyway, we could probably carry on for quite a while no, with I this one. Like and then this other part that I really liked, and can I talk about this? And yeah. um, I, I think it's safe to say we would all recommend this book. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Have any of you seen the movie? I no. watched the trailer. I watched it, and it too. it made me cry. Yeah. But I also, it made me not want to watch it. Yeah, I, when you watch a movie of a book you love, yeah. it can, it can affect how you <laughs> feel about the book. So, yeah, yeah. it yeah. can, it's risky. Yeah, it is risky. Yeah. And like how you see, even how you see the characters, exactly. like in the preview, it was these two uh, yellow haired women who were playing Yoli and Elf and I'm like, oh, I didn't picture them as having yellow hair, <laughs> and, but now I kind of do. And, yeah. yeah. And Elf looked so sort of elegant. Elegant. Yeah. And, yeah. I just. I yeah. I pictured Elf being pretty elegant. Uh, She seemed to me the type that would have features that would just kind of draw your eye, like. Yeah. That she would be the kind who would stand out in a crowd for uh, either the way she carried herself mm -hmm. or the, what she was doing or her appearance. Like something would draw you to her. her personality is what I thought it was just so sort of. But maybe it comes out in the movie too. That could. That could be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, before we wrap up, though, I'm going yes. to refer to uh, one of my favorite passages from there, um, where Yoli was talking to one of her lovers, I think. Um, she said, I have seen your sister play. What? I said, you have? You never told me that. In Prague, he said, and I'm not surprised. Surprised by what? I asked him. By her suffering, he said. When I listened to her play, I felt I should not be there in the same room with her. There were hundreds of people, but nobody left. It was a private pain. By private, I mean to say unknowable. Only the music knew, and it held secrets so that her playing was a puzzle, a whisper, and people afterwards stood in the bar and drank and said nothing. Mm -hmm. you know. mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, that's, you know... I've heard pieces of music where you can you can feel the emotion and it carries through in a way that words can't and can penetrate uh, any difference in your uh, life experience or anything. You can feel it, yeah. you know, and uh, I, I love the descriptions of her being able to play music so powerfully that people would feel that way afterwards. Mm -hmm. Or they would feel that it's dangerous, as in the, mm -hmm. uh, the, the town. Well, in a way, elders. the elders were right, yeah. you know. This is dangerous. Yeah. It, it, is it creates too much things. emotion. Yeah. It makes people think. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, before we keep going on, <laughs> let us maybe move. this should just become a Miriam Taves podcast. <laughs> no, no, we need, we need some variation. So let us move on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like? Does anyone have anything they would like to recommend? I do. I think the book that I read before this was called My Sister, the Serial Killer mm -hmm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, by a Nigerian writer, Owen Khan Braithwaite. Owen Khan Braithwaite. So it's about these two sisters. Korede is practical, loyal. She's a nurse. And then there's uh, Ayula, the favorite child, beautiful but also very possibly a sociopath. <laughs> so Korede, with her nursing skills and just being this sister, 
very close to her. Um, she basically helps Eula clean up and cover up three murders of Eula's three ex-boyfriends. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's super dark, but it's also like very funny. It's meant to be a comedy. And also it's set in Lagos, Nigeria. And again, like the place, the sense of place is very, very strong in the book. Um, I found it to be anyway. So that really sort of made me think about this book as well, where I found Winnipeg and Toronto to be so, uh, so much at a forefront, even Toronto. And I had just been there. So there were lots of things that really came out for me. Mm-hmm. So in in this book, my sister, the serial killer, Korode, who is a the nurse, she only confides the big secret uh, with a uh, comatose patient in the hospital. And then, of course, of course, the patient wakes up. But, uh, <laughs> but Korode is also in love uh, with a doctor at the hospital. And sort of the, the climax happens when this doctor asks for Eula's phone number so Cora Day is very worried then about what will happen with this so um anyway it's have you read it I have yeah, yeah. did you like it I did yeah. yeah and it's short like it's it, like yeah, less I know. than it's, 200 pages or a, something it's a great I, yeah. I read actually the large print version so it felt like it was a little bit longer but but yeah and it's not really it's not really a whodunit mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's yeah more about the relationship between these two mm-hmm. and the mother actually also figures very very strongly in this as well mm-hmm. so anyway that's My Sister, the Serial Killer by Oyinkan Braithwaite. It's her first book. Sounds very interesting. It's <laughs> a good one. I'm a Miriam Taves stan, so I was thinking of recommending another book by Miriam Taves, but this is my favorite book, and I didn't want to recommend anything less than, but I mean, if this book is a five out of five, like, you know, Fight Night or um, Women Talking is like a 4.9 out of five. So it's not like they're that lesser than, but I still went um, in a different direction. So when I was reading up on this book, I read a review that compared this book to Department of Speculation by Jenny Offal, and that they both came out the same year. They're both kind of plotless and about struggling women. And it's not the strongest comparison, but that was a book I really, really loved. So that's my recommendation. This is a book, it's, um, it's about a relationship from like the early idyllic days to the less idyllic later days, but it's told in fragments. So there are just these really short like details or observations that miraculously come together to form a narrative. And it's spare, it's beautiful, it's witty, just like this one. And I read a review of it that said, I underlined basically the entire novel. And that's kind of how I feel about it. Like, it's one of those books where, like, every fragment you're like, oh, I want to tattoo that on my body or, like, you know, put it on my bulletin board. It's, it's wonderful. Um, so that's Department of Speculation by Jenny Offal. I agree with that. That's okay. a good one. Yeah, I feel like I might have actually, it might have been a... a book suggestion of oh. mine a couple years ago <laughs> oh, but okay. that was a very good way of pulling that together mm-hmm. wasn't she a librarian too in that or did oh, you work in maybe. a library maybe anyway yeah 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 or was that her or was newer, that her that newer was one weather. that yeah, might have been a newer, newer one, one with, yeah. which i also yeah. really love too yes anyway, mm-hmm. sorry i'm going to recommend a book that we've previously featured on the podcast the death of vivek og by akweki imizi another nigerian book yes mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> a theme <laughs> I'll read the description here. Uh, Raised by a distant father and an understanding but overprotective mother, Vivek suffers disorienting blackouts, moments of disconnection between self and surroundings. As adolescence gives way to adulthood, Vivek finds solace in friendships with the warm, boisterous daughters of the Niger wives, foreign-born women married to Nigerian men. But Vivek's closest bond is with Osita, the worldly, high-spirited cousin whose teasing confidence masks a guarded private life. As their relationship deepens and Osita struggles to understand Vivek's escalating crisis, the mystery gives way to a heart-stopping act of violence in a moment of exhilarating freedom. Both of these books have a certain chaotic feel to them. Both feature characters that are suffering deeply and end up dead. Both of these characters had people around them that were trying to help but had limited success and who really had to process what the death meant. There was a line from uh, Vivek Oji that uh, stayed with me where Vivek was describing life as being like spun around in a vat of concrete and how at the beginning it doesn't really stick to you much, but as you're spinning around, it more and more sticks to you and it gets heavier and heavier and harder to move, which I thought was, uh, was one of the best descriptions of depression that I've ever read. 
And I just feel like if you're looking for something in a similar dark, depressing vein, (laughs) this is a good book. It's beautiful, too. But only read it if you're ready for it. So now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein our panelists talk about a word or phrase that has been on our minds recently. So my word this month is piano. So I think when we see that word, when we hear it, we often think of the stringed keyboard instrument, but it is also a musical term that means to be played softly. So you might see it on sheet music. Um, If you play an instrument, you'll see P or piano, which means you play this part softly. And I was curious about how it came to be that this musical term and the instrument are the same thing. So I found out that the word piano, as in the instrument, is a shortened form of pianoforte, which is the Italian term for the early 1700s version of the instrument. It could also be a forte piano, pianoforte, the same thing. They seem kind of interchangeable. And pianoforte, uh, piano means soft and forte means loud. And it was called this because it came right after the harpsichord. And the harpsichord was an instrument like the piano that you couldn't control the volume of. It just played at one level. So when the pianoforte was invented, they called it a name, soft loud, because it's an instrument, unlike the harpsichord, that you could play at both volumes. And so pianoforte, uh, the instrument, eventually just got shortened to piano for the instrument, but then still gives us the word piano as in to be played softly. Mm-hmm. But that is fascinating. I didn't, yeah. had no idea about the connection between the name and the volume. Mm-hmm. And it's weird to be like playing a piano and then to have like piano noted there. It's like mm-hmm. it's strange that they're both words within like this musical lexicon. Mm-hmm. But I'm playing yeah. an organ. How can I play the piano? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I always do this when we do the nerd word. I, I never just have like one word. It's more like a phrase. And with this book, I was really brought back to my own German childhood and my Oma, Elfriede, and the things that she would say to us. Like, And, there, and I have three sisters, so... I think we were a lot, and sometimes my parents would, like, leave us with my Oma. And, uh, you know, she'd come down the stairs and she'd say, Potsblitzendoria! At least that's what I heard. So I've always wondered, where did that come from? Okay, I never did actually find out. (laughs) Um, So if anyone knows, if anyone else, is this just something that she made up? Potsblitzendoria. Now, then I started to think, well, maybe it's more the blitz. Blitz means lightning. Doria, maybe it wasn't Doria, maybe it was Donna, which is thunder. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the pots, but anyway, she would come out, pots, blitz on Doria. And so then I started to remember her saying, Donna Vetta, which means thunder weather, mm-hmm. <laughs> thunderstorm. Or Manometa. We, actually, we always used to say that too, just ourselves. Manometa, like, geez. But that comes from, that's a, it's a meter that actually measures air quality and airflow. Hmm. So anyway, all of these different terms and phrases that my Oma Elfriede used to say to us when she was sort of like, had enough with mm-hmm. the four girls, the four women girls, and Donna Vetta, Potsblitz und Doria, Manometa. And they all have something to do, I think, with weather, with yeah. Like you're a natural force that uh, can't be controlled. Right. And will you just That's stop right. being th- the thunderstorm? That's right, exactly. <laughs> Pots blitz und Doria. So you've never heard that, hey? No. Okay. No. I just, yeah. And she, maybe she made it up. I don't know. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I guess those are my my words, my mm-hmm. nerd words that just really sort of came to me and had me thinking about. Um, I don't have a very good explanation about them, but they're all related to weather. That's a nerd word puzzle. If you have have deeper insight into these phrases, dear reader, please email us. We would love to know. Uh, So I picked a word from the book. Early in the book, Yuli offered a suggestion to Elf, and Elf looked at her askance. And so that's my nerd word, askance. It's defined as with disapproval or distrust or with a side glance. Merriam-Webster says this about the word's origins. Askance, which etymologists believe may have been influenced by askew, comes from Middle English forms such as asconce, uh, ascans, asconces, meaning variously in such a way that as if, as if to say, and artificially or deceptively. 
The word was first used in English in the 16th century with the meaning of sideways or with a sideways glance. And writers over the years have used the suggestion of someone looking askance at something to express a number of feelings from disapproval to distrust to jealousy. I love the idea of the sideways glance. Uh, the meaning of it always depends on context, but it's an evocative term, and I love the sound of it. Askance. Askance. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. A couple of months ago, we ran a poll on our Facebook group asking you to choose which genre of book you'd like us to tackle. After a tight race, armchair travel beat out historical romance. So for next month, we're going to read and discuss In a Sunburned Country by Bill Bryson. Description. Despite the fact that Australia harbors more things that can kill you in extremely nasty ways than anywhere else, including sharks, crocodiles, snakes, even riptides and deserts, Bill Bryson adores the place and he takes his readers on a rollicking ride far beyond that beaten tourist path. Wherever he goes, he finds Australians who are cheerful, extroverted, and unfailingly obliging, and these beaming products of land with clean, safe cities, cold beer, and constant sunshine fill the pages of this wonderful book. Australia is an immense and fortunate land, and it is found in Bill Bryson, its perfect guide. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service, and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find... Time to Read! feel before <laughs> podcast a little bit flaily but then it always it always comes together yeah. yeah yeah and i guess we should acknowledge that we don't have trevor and we have kirsten yeah today. yeah we're going to acknowledge it we're not just going to ignore it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> trevor yeah. who's trevor never heard of him doesn't work here